Hi, everyone. My name is Nick Craig, and this is the Leading from Purpose podcast. My special guest today, and I've known him for a long time as well, is Ranjay Galati. Ranjay has written an amazing book called Deep Purpose. He's also a professor at Harvard Business School. Ranjay, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Nick. It's my pleasure to be here with you as always. Great to catch up. And I always learn a lot from our conversations. <laughs> Vice versa. You and I have known each other for some time, and uh, we've had conversations around purpose for a while. What's interesting, what I know about you is that you, when you go into a particular topic, you go really deep. And I'm just really curious about why did you decide to step into the journey of looking at purpose? So, you know, Nick, five years ago, if you told me, Ranjay, I have a crystal ball and you, my friend, are going to write a book about purpose, I would have said you're crazy. I studied growth of companies and I studied how to unlock growth in good times and bad. And I had a winning formula in my head. Got to build a great strategy with moats in it and competitive advantage baked into it. And you got to implement the strategy. And I thought that was it, you know, and, you know, purpose and mission statement, this is kind of like, you know, wallpaper, you know, okay, fine. You know, it's like there, but not really there. And so when somebody talked about mission driven companies, I saw that as a small scale endeavor, or a funky endeavor, you know, the Patagonia, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, it was not a mainstream idea. And, and there was a series of things that came about that made me kind of come to realize how I had missed something right under my nose. And it was kind of amazing. It was a, I was going on a sabbatical. I was thinking hard about what is important in the world. What do I want to do? Mm. And in that, about my own purpose... There was a lot going on, and I came to realize the ultimate unlock of performance of a business on all dimensions was purpose. Interesting. So as you got into this, look, you did this research, and we're going to talk a little bit about it. I'm just curious because, you know, when you you take a topic and you say, great, this is what I want to play with, was there a real big surprise as as you worked through this for yourself? Well, the first thing I learned was that the word purpose has been hijacked. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's very true. <laughs> purpose is woke ink. Purpose is anything but profit. Purpose is, I mean, you're like, oh, why? purpose is horrible. Purpose is wonderful. And I was like, what is going on over here? And I came to realize, first thing is, purpose is not a purpose statement. First, You know, we kind of think it's embodied in the set of words. Sure, there's a sentence, you know, that might be your mission statement or your purpose statement. But it was a much bigger idea than that. And that's why I had to call the book Deep Purpose, because I saw a lot of superficial purpose. So for me, the signal-noise ratio was problematic because I saw a lot of noise. And I had to kind of work my way through understanding what exactly is purpose before I could get to the understanding of what it is and how you do it. What is purpose then for you? You know, I'll tell you my favorite definition. Purpose is fundamentally an individual construct, first of all, right? Would you agree? You would, mm-hmm. you would. Absolutely. You and I are on the same page. Right. And I think for me, the best definition of individual purpose, which I think has some resonance to organizational purposes, purpose is from William Damon, a Stanford psychologist wrote, purpose is a stable and generalized intention to accomplish something that is at the same time meaningful to the self and consequential for the world beyond the self. Now, the most important word in that definition is and. Yeah, it is. Meaningful to the self and consequential for the world beyond the self. People focus on one or the other. Oh, purpose is anything but self. It's about consequence for the world. Oh, purpose is shareholder values for me, only me. 
And I think it's the word and that I think is critical mm-hmm. in this understanding. And I think the same thing happened in organizations when we started to hijack the word purpose, that purpose is profit, purpose is anything but profit. You know, I define it in my book as a unifying ideal of the problems you want to profitably solve for an organization. With that, I think you came up with one of the most best words combinations I've heard in a long time around purpose. And it relates to Halloween in an interesting way. Convenient purpose. And you have a story in the book that I just was like, oh my gosh, I just wish I'd come up with this one myself because it was just so good. Can you talk a little bit about convenient purpose? So, you know, I think is <clears throat> I, I found it fascinating that in the sea of skepticism, you know, there was an article like in the Financial Times called The Baffling Search for Purpose in a Purpose State. Then there were people going after the business roundtable who signed this mm-hmm. new purpose of organizations. Yep. Then COVID hit and nothing happened from there. So there was a lot of pushback. But I, I discovered very quickly that when a lot of companies invoke purpose in a very convenient way, some even take it in a negative direction where it's purpose washing. So if you look at what happened to, you know, Theranos had a purpose. Right. Purdue Pharmaceutical had a purpose. Facebook, when they got in trouble in 2016 and they were about to be regulated, you know, what happens is, you know, they show up with a purpose. <laughs> and they say, oh, no, 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 no. You know, we have a purpose and, you know, we want to tell you about our purpose. And you know what the, the purpose was, ironically, in 2016? We want to give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. So this is plays into cynicism. And then purpose becomes just sloganeering, a marketing messaging, a tagline, a, a wallpaper. And I thought, but then some companies who are really going in a different direction and doing what I call putting your purpose to work. They were really leaning into purpose. And, you know, when I was Nick, you know, author yourself, you know, you know, I was told one word title, sell a lot of books. And I really wanted to call the book purpose. I couldn't. Yeah, I get. I mean, I, I'm, I'm so humble. I mean, I think for both of us, I think the challenge is there's too many people that can do too many things and have done too many silly things with that word. Yeah. And what's interesting is that as you talk about this, you also reference what good companies do is a convenient purpose in some sense. I really love is that they do the ESG stuff and that's it, right? They sort of do the the surface stuff, but not the deep dive into their strategy and who they are. I, I mean, th- think about it. Purpose is not what you do. So if you say, oh, purpose is save the Amazon, do good things, have a charity, do that. Purpose is not what you do. Purpose is a forcing mechanism to ask the why question. And when you ask the, it's not what, it's not how. It's not a what question, nor is it a how, it's a why question. And the idea behind it is why questions are a forcing mechanism to get you to reflect more deeply. Mm. You know, I, very similar. I think value of purpose is that it forces you to ask questions you wouldn't ask otherwise, for which there are no good answers. Now, there's a phrase you use in the book as well that I love is practical idealism. Yeah. Which I think is really edgy in the sense of what it means. And I agonized over that phrase, by the way, because I also discovered another among the many confusing aspects of purpose was purpose is win-win. Do good and do well. And then you saw books coming out, which said, you know, there was a book that came out, which is really interesting how we think about titles of books. It was called The Power of And, Responsible Business Without Trade-Offs. And I'm thinking, without (laughs) trade-offs? I would love to live in the world without trade-offs. 
And I discovered, but everyone I was talking to was like, no, I every day I'm making trade-offs because I got to decide I got a pie. You know, now, of course, there's another great book that came out called Grow the Pie. So when in doubt, grow the pie. And then when the pie grows, then there's more for everybody. But I also discovered people have to live in this space of trade-off. Choices. How much do I give to shareholders? How much do I give to customers in terms of pricing? How much do I give to the employees? How much do I give to the community? How much do I give to the planet? You know, it's one thing to create value. It's one thing to capture the value. But then you got to just divvy up the value. Mm. And divvying up involves is inherently a choice question mark. So the question then became, how do we think about that? Even individually, like you have work, you have leisure, you have family, we have commitments. And we have only so much time. So now you can try to blend the two together saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take a working vacation. We're gonna, I'm going to work. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Really? So, exactly. Now, there's a company called Gotham Green that you refer to in the book, which I thought was a wonderful example of really looking at this practical idealism and the trade-offs of just going for purpose for purpose sake as opposed to how do you make all the pieces fit together. Yeah. I, I love Gotham Green. It's a great example of a small company because I discovered this is not a large company story. A, a lot of small companies we think they start with a big idea. I wrote an HBR article called From Why Do Startups Have Big Ideas and Grand Ideas? I saw a lot of small companies where they start not with the, oh, we're going to make a lot of money. It's like, we got a big thing we can do here. Hmm. We're going to change the way this market operates. Right? I'm Netflix. We're going to change the way entertainment is consumed. We're going to take on Blockbuster. You know? And so it's, there's ambition into that thing. Right? And Gotham Green had this idea I mean, these are not your kind of tree-hugging uh, people saying, oh, I got to... Yes, of course, they have an environmental agenda, but this is not like we don't want to make any money. And the whole trade-off here was we grow... Our, it's an agro-tech company that uses urban rooftops for those who haven't read the book. And the question was, what do we do with packaging? And after agonizing and trying, we have to be sustainable. We're a sustainability company. But we also want to reduce spoilage of food because the thing spoils these lettuce and herbs that they sell spoil very quickly. Mm. And after all kinds of song and dance, they realized plastic was still the best, longest preserving packaging material. They still use plastic. So how do you live with these uncomfortable choices? So you can't be pure idealistic. You can't be purely down there. But idea here was purpose gives you kind of a, a guiding, uh, you know, as our friend Bill George likes to say, your North Star. It gives you kind of a framework in which yep. you can think about trade-offs. In some ways, that's the gift, I think, of what you describe in the book, is that what I really see as well is without that, you don't have to make these trade-offs. You don't have to worry about it. You just have to work out profit. And then there's a basic, simple, easy conversation about what it may, what makes it work. Here, it makes it where you really have to struggle with what the right answer is. And you're, in some sense, I think organizations that have a really good sense of purpose are always in the struggle, which is not about being happy. Yeah. So the first HBR I wrote out of my book is called The Messy But Essential Pursuit of Purpose. Yeah. That is messy, but essential. And, and you know, life in messiness. So I think that's why I found this 
stylized models of win-win, no trade-off, you know, we're going to be in kind of a, you know, idyllic kind of paradise. I think the world is messier than that. It's very messy. Now, one of the parts of the world I get to spend a lot of time in is Switzerland. I was just there last week. And one of the favorite companies that you have in the book, which I just think is a fabulous example of most everything we're talking about, is Bueller and the family and its legacy of what it does in the world and how it's trying to blend both being highly profitable and highly purpose-driven at the same time. And I know you've spent some time with this company as well. So Bueller, as for those who don't know, is a privately held company. They make equipment that processes food, grains, lentil. They even make pasta, barilla pasta, lint chocolates, pulses, gray, all kinds of things, and all over the world. And, you know, they wanted to be eco-friendly. They said, look, the world needs food. We're in the food business. By the way, food is the number two contributor to greenhouse gas emissions after oil and gas. So we need to do something about it. Uh, oh, by the way, 40% of food is wasted and never consumed. So we've got a problem here. But, you know, they said, okay, we'll make our machines more energy efficient. They said, that's not going to do it. Hmm. We've got to bring the whole industry together. We need to think bigger than our business only. So you might say that's a side project, but here's what I think are the benefits of purpose. There are four benefits of purpose. First one, purpose is motivation. Yep. Employees are more energized, inspired to be there. Number two, purpose is reputational. Customers care. It works for your brand. Number three, purpose is relational. It creates transparency and trust so you can partner with others more easily. And the last one is purpose is direction. It creates clarity on where you want to go in these turbulent times. And Bueller has fully benefited from really leaning into their purpose. Employees, they are now considered one of the top most desirable places to work in Switzerland. That was never the case before that, right? Customers, you can see that too. Relational partnerships, you can see that too. And directional. So when I say putting purpose to work, I really mean leaning into all four of them. So tell me, because this is a family-owned company, handed down, what is it in their purpose that had them decide to do this very unconventional act of holding a conference for them and all their competitors and and customers, which you could argue would be just kind of like, what are you thinking? Why would they, what is it that purpose did that made that a good idea for them? It starts by having a more expansive notion of yourself. Interesting. You can start, remember when I said what is purpose? Purpose is something that is meaningful to the self and consequential to the world beyond the self. And I think is a lot of us are fixated on the meaningful to the self piece, which was shareholder value, optimized for the shareholders. You know, we define our the KPIs are driven by those metrics as well. We apply it individually also. So we're in a transactional relationship. The organization is described as a nexus of contracts. That's how economists visualize organizations. And it's really hard to think beyond that. Hmm. And I think for the first place is, and consequential to the world beyond us. So when you're reimagining your purpose and saying, why do we exist as a business? Are we here simply to feed the owning family and the employees who want to get a salary, a paycheck? Is that why we exist? Yes, we do. We have to provide paycheck for employees and a, and a source of income for the family. Yes. What about the end? How do we need to think about it? And I think it's that piece of it when you have a more expansive understanding of what is my place in this world. 
So, How do I see myself? I think, I, I mean, I've been through this journey for myself through this book. Why do I do what I do? And what did you discover for yourself? How, how did the book help you writing the book? I mean, I know that every time I've written a book, it's like it's been a transformational journey. Ah, You know, I've written other books before. I don't think anything transformed me the way this book has. It really has been. Maybe there was COVID in the middle of all this too, right? So I always like to say, people say, great resignation. And I, I've written an HBR called The Great Rethink. That it's not, I think all of us were contemplating, what, is, what are we doing? You know, we all saw death. We saw fear. Mm-hmm. We saw all kinds of things, right? Impossible to have imagined. And so I was going through this COVID period, which was actually had a huge plus side. My, my family, we were all under one roof together. We had never spent so much time together, which was wonderful. So it was beautiful in some ways. And I got to work on this book. Mm. But I think it was a transformation. This book transformed me to think harder about my own purpose. Meaningful to the self and mm. consequential for the world beyond the self. You know, my father used to always say to me, you know, he had one of his favorite sayings. It was in Hindi. Let me translate it loosely in English to you. And he says, do good deeds and put them in the way. Can you say it in Hindi? Uh, it was called, it's in Punjabi, actually. It's called Punjabi. Neki Kar, Neki kar Darya Medal, which Sounds means better. do a good deed and put it in the river. How are you, what is your footprint of impact without any expectation of return? Hmm. We all may do it. I want a tax write-off. Okay, here's my tax <laughs> charitable deduction, but I want to write off on that, please. <laughs> uh, there better be some gift coming my way, too. <laughs> or if I do a favor for you, I want to keep my little checkbook my bank balance in my head alive it's part of that transactional mindset and i found that companies starting to do and they were not doing outright charity so i'll give you an example and this ties into what we were talking about trade-offs one of the company looked at is recruit and recruit is a really successful japanese company and they believe that every project they fund has to have a social component to it so a big issue in japan is educational uh, access to get into college, you have to take an entrance exam. Every college has their own yeah. entrance exam. And really? the question on the exam, yeah, it's not a one, it's not SAT. You take individual exams for colleges. And the questions on the exams are not covered in high school. You need tutoring to prepare for college exams. Well. And so everyone needs a tutor, and the tutors are super expensive in Japan. And so the rich kids from big cities are able to afford tutors. If you're from a small town, you're out of luck because you can't pay for the tutor. You can't take the exam. You don't know what's on the exam. You don't know that stuff. So they said, we're going to create an online platform to offer tutoring at very low cost. But they couldn't make the economics work. But recruits said, we're going to fund it. And they funded it first. And they said, but you know what? We want at some point, we're doing it because it's socially impactful. Mm. But at some point, you've got to deliver profit. And we're going to hang in there with you. But they did. So how do you take sometimes the leap of faith in business while looking for the CEO. I, an example I use in the book is uh, the CEO of Walmart. In, in, in our, after, after Hurricane Katrina saying, we're going to put solar panels on our rooftops, even though it's uneconomic. But you know what? I'm going to instruct my team. You better find a way to make it economic. Put the Walmart hat on. We know how to take cost out. We know how to do things mm-hmm. inexpensive. Go figure it out. So, you know, how do you, the instincts start to change a little bit. How do I create value? So back to me, you know, I mean, yeah. I, 
think I am now firmly ensconced in this idea that I do things that are not just meaningful to myself, but also consequential for the world beyond the self. Whether it's my immediate environment, how do I, you know, we have to be reminded of that. We grew up in a system, we get socialized into a certain way of doing things, and sometimes we forget. Yeah. I'll share with you, Nick, a personal story, if you like. Please, I love that. So, you know, I started my career as an academic, and early in my career, you know, it's publish or perish. So it was all about get your research out the door or you're out of a job. And so in that process, I acclimated into this personal purpose around, I got to do research. I'm a researcher. The way I wanted to have a positive impact on the world, my parents taught me that, but I knew I had to do through research. Teaching was a necessary evil. Gotta go do it, you know. (laughs) You know, you do what you have to do and don't embarrass yourself, but you know, you're not gonna like go out of your way in that regard. And I did that for many years. Mm. And then, I don't know, 15 plus years ago, I get an email from a former student of mine. And I don't know who this person is. I don't remember them. I don't know who they are. They're like, I wanted to come and see you and would you have a few minutes to spend? Now, my calendar is broken into 20 or 30 minute chunks. So I gave my assistant instructions saying 20 or 30 minutes. Ideally 20 if you have to 30. So she came back and said, Ranjay, uh, he's asking for more time. And ideally wants to have lunch with me. I'm like, I don't have time for this. I'm busy with my work. I mean, I got papers to write. I got things to do, you know. So I said, like, isn't there any way you can, like, find a way out of this? And she's like, well, I tried. But he's saying he's flying into town just to see you. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, my God. So now I feel guilty and I say, okay, fine, agree to a lunch. And I'm presuming he's coming to ask me if he wants some help. You know, if he's flying all the way in to see me and he's come from overseas, but he's coming into New York and then he's flying up to Boston to see me. I thought maybe, you know, I can help him with a job search or something I can do. So anyway, we sit down, we have our pleasantries. And then I said, so how can I help you? And he said, oh, oh, I, I don't need anything. I'm not here to ask for help. And I said, oh, he said, yeah, actually, I have to tell you, Ranjay, your class had a huge impact on me 10 years ago when I took it. And I'm here. I had promised myself that one day I'm going to find a way to come and thank you in person. And that's why I'm here. And I was like, really? Are you sure my class? (laughs) And I'm thinking, oh, my God. You know, so this was like Mm. an epiphany for me. So, you know, we have our moments that kind of awaken us a little bit into these journeys. That, you know, what am I doing? Is it meaningful to the self and consequential for the world beyond the self? So I, you know, this has been a, a journey. I'm not there yet, but I'm still, the book was one more awakening into understanding how extraordinary people really lean into their purpose. So there's a phrase you use in the book, which I really liked as well. There's a number of them, but there's another one I want to put on the table. Integrated moral community. You use it a lot. What does that mean for you? And why is that important? Let me tell you what I'm talking about here. Is, and this ties back to what I said earlier, that, you know, economists, we like are reductionists. Uh, all academics are. We're all reductionists. We try to build simple models to explain reality. And so the economic reductionist model of organizations is a nexus of contract. We're all here to in a contractual relationship in which we exchange our services and time for financial payback. 
Then the transaction, and you may get benefits also. You might even say there's some psychic benefits, but it's really kind of a benefit and cost. So you're trading off your whatever you have, your leisure, free time, whatever, your time for something in return. And it used to be economic returns. Now you might add psychic returns as well, but it's still, that's the kind of transaction. And I found, sure, maybe that's one way of thinking of organizing. Mm -hmm. But if you look at communities which come together around a shared ideal, I don't even need to go that far, but extreme would be religious community or spiritual communities. They come together, or you can even look at military communities. I mean, you look at the Ukrainian army right now, right? <laughs> Is there a nexus of contracts? Hmm. Is that soldier saying, well, I, I, I need a bonus. I almost got hit. I mean, there should be a bonus for a danger bonus. You're sending me to the front line. I need a double bonus for that one. That's okay. hardship wages. Oh, I that sounds like a good day. Saturday Night Live routine is what you've just done. Yeah. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think we forget that there are organizations that are not just transactionally connected, but are connected in more deeper, profound mm -hmm. And when they are, people show up differently. You know, I don't want to push overplay the Ukraine example. I don't have the data. I haven't talked to anybody there. But here you have a forced conscription where people are running away, running to their border saying, get me out of here. I don't want to go there. Going to prisons, trying to get people out of jail, offering bonuses to join and trying to solicit people to come, drag them kicking and screaming. And you got the other side where you got a volunteer group. Yeah. Who's how are we going to so nexus of contracts or a moral community? You can see what the performance will be. And I think that was the idea that I was trying to portray. That you know, organizations can look very different, feel very different, depending on how you envision them. And for you, purpose allows that moral community to be created in a sort of co- they sort of, re they're like an ecosystem is my sense of what you, as you were describing in the book. Is that true? Or how Deep do you see purpose. it? Deep purpose can. Yeah. If it's just purpose, it can, the idea that it'll have a rallying cry. We'll have a purpose statement. And guess what? From tomorrow, we are a moral community. We all show up differently. Not going to work. It's the deep purpose that is going to allow you to show up differently in this context. And that, I think, is the key. We should talk about a company that we both have in common, our friends at Lego. So I've worked with them for the last 10 years doing all the purpose work, but you've also spent time with the former CEO who was the one who turned Lego around when it was about to get bankrupt, Jorgen. And so he, how did his conversation and his journey impact you as you were looking at purpose? Yeah. So Lego is a fascinating story because I suddenly also realized that having purpose can be a way to transform and turn around a business. So this goes back to what I was saying earlier about my textbook version of unlocking organizational potential. So what did Yon have to do? First thing, he needed to change the strategy, right? Because Lego was all over the place. When he took over, they were nearly bankrupt, financially broken, but they were doing theme parks. They were doing movies. They were doing ele electronic toys. They were doing video games. They were everywhere. And yet, they were financially unviable. They were doing lots of new products with SKUs out of the wazoo. And so the first thing you know, got to figure out strategy. Then you say our organization is broken. You know, we don't have an org structure that works. You know, we don't have a culture that works. We got to do that too. And then into the mix, he throws purpose. He says, why does Lego exist? 
And by the way, to answer that question, I want to go back to the founding days. Yeah. Every business has a founding story. And I actually just published an article in Harvard Business Review last week, which talks about the Lego story, about how you look backwards while looking forward. You see, looking into your past can turn into an exercise in nostalgia. The good old days. And in the good old days. He said, no, we're going to be past inspired, but forward looking. How do you do that? It's a bit of a tension and a contradiction. And, you know, it's interesting. And then once I did Lego, I realized they weren't the only ones who turned around their business through purpose. Microsoft was another one. Mm-hmm. And Etsy was another one. And I can go on and on about so many examples where Best Buy was another one, where turnaround situations, where leaders suddenly lean into the purpose of the organization. Yeah, no, it's absolutely. And I think you know, creating the builders of tomorrow as part of that. And what's interesting, working with the current CEO that I know, Niels, in which they then took it to the next level around the vision of how do they bring that alive. Um, and the global force of establishing and innovating learning through play is sort of this continuation. I think one of the things you also talk about in the book is the importance of succession planning and how, to, you know, if you have this magic, this sense of moral community, how do you hand that moral community to the next group? So, you know, this is a great question. And one of the companies I looked at, which you would find interesting, was Starbucks. And they've struggled with handing over that, right? And I think is what you see is the former CEO now described to me, he says, you know, it's really hard to go from being founder-led to founder-inspired. You know, it's because the business's identity, its purpose, its culture, everything gets wound up in a personality of an individual, larger than life. And decoupling the organization from the individual. And I'll tell you a really powerful story on this one was I interviewed somebody who used to work at Apple. And he described to me what happened at Apple was once Steve Jobs realized that he is done and he was going to be passing away, he had this kind of fear. And the fear came from his sitting on the Disney board because he was on the board of Disney. Yeah. And what happened was he found very frustrating was Every major decision that had to be made, somebody on the board would invariably ask the question, what would Walt have done if he was here? And Steve would always say, Walt isn't here. Walt died 50 years ago. The world has changed. Why do we have to keep channeling Walt? Okay, Walt had a philosophy. Walt maybe had a larger perspective. But do we have to invoke Walt, so he was worried that they were saying, what would Steve have done? He knew that he was a larger-than-life figure mm-hmm. at Apple, the way Walt Disney was. Yeah. And so how do you create founder-inspired? And that, I think, is a very, very hard decoupling. And this has happened in so many companies. You're going to get Phil Knight at Nike, and and there are so many others like that, you know, that where the founders are these larger-than-life characters. Can you separate purpose from the individual because i think that's the fundamental question that we're sort of playing with and part of this is because the founder is an embodiment of the purpose which is about identity and it's interesting to see how how do you do this handoff successfully so look i don't want to get religious here i'm indian by birth right i'm a hindu by birth why do we have so many gods I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> you asked the question. I don't want to go into that question. But I'll tell you what, each one thing I do know is each God 
or goddess represents a set of ideas. Interesting. Personification of something bigger, mm-hmm. larger. So sometimes we, you know, human beings, we have a need to connect an ideal or an idea to something, an individual. Yeah. And decoupling that idea, saying, oh, you know what, the founder is gone, but is founder inspired. And I think is how do we go from, you know, and I think this becomes very, very difficult in, in organizations where succession then is very challenging. And I think this is going to be, this is always a struggle in any organization. The, even the founder themselves has to realize that it's in the best interest of the organization to point people, decoupling. I have a whole section in my book on that, by the way. But how do you decouple? Yeah. And make people feel loyalty to the organization and the ideal it stands for more than to the individual who may personify that idea. And how do you walk away? That's why, that's why a lot of successful handoffs are ones where the founder basically, this kind of half-baked handoff where I'm still hanging around and I still have my phone on, people have my phone number, it's not going to work. Well, one of the gifts of your book, from my perspective, is, is that you provide, probably it's the, the only book I've read, so I've read almost everything anybody's published on purpose because my own interest and curiosity. But I think when I sat down and read through your book, my feeling was is that because of the your purpose and the place you write from of decoding that bigger picture, I think you helped clarify at a at a macro level what are some of the major pieces that you have to get right if you really want to create deep purpose within an organization. Okay. Well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. I think is um this was really a personal project for me. And, you know, I came away deeply inspired from the companies I saw. Mm. And, you know, my wish is that, you know, I love what I do. I deeply connect to the organization I work with. And by virtue of that, I feel I show up differently. And I feel really grateful for that opportunity. I mean, every day I when I go into the, into work, you know, I'm pinching myself and saying, you know, I can't believe I get to do this. And you show up in a different way versus my work is a job. I got a punch in and I live my life on the weekends. So I'm in this transactional, you know, minimized effort, maximized benefit, the mini max problem we call it. And then an excess of contracts. And you look at what's happening now with the great resignation people call, I call it the great rethink that is happening. And I think there is something more profound going on. There is something more going on. And what I want to do is thank you for spending this time with us today, Ranji. Thank you for so much for sharing your insights. And I welcome all of you to stay tuned as we go on this journey. So off for now, and we'll talk to all of you, or you'll all be hearing from us in our next podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Craig. It was really a pleasure to be here with you today. As always, I learn a lot from our conversation. So thank you for having me here.